0: Hello and welcome to the Point One Policy Podcast. Today we've got quite the juicy subject in in money laundering. Joining me across the desk, as
1: always, is Nigel Everding. No desk. Never a desk. No juice. Um, Unless you, yeah. consider juice. So, you consider tea juice. Do you consider tea juice?
0: Well, it's pomegranate tea, so it might be juice. Mm, yeah, it's tough to know what juice is. Yeah. Yeah, so... This topic ended up being pretty crazy and widespread and hard to grasp. I wouldn't say widespread. Well, I just think there's... Illegal activity is inherently harder to have a better grasp on what's happening exactly. Yeah, Uh, I heard of that. And therefore, we're trying to cover what is known and what is out there, but uh, obviously this will be uh, an incomplete report on the state of affairs...
1: Oh, well, it's also still breaking.
0: Yeah, totally. So just so we're clear on what money laundering is and why it needs to happen, essentially, as an explanation, let's say I were to run a drug importing organization in which I receive a lot of drugs and then I sell them wholesale to distributors, I'm going to be making a ton of money. And so let's say end of the year I have $2 million in cash. I can't just write that into my taxes and then have that money without raising a bunch of bunch of red flags. I can't buy a home in raw cash without raising alarms. I can't
1: buy Maybe it. you can.
0: Well, I can't normally. I'm not supposed to be able to buy a car or a home or you know, anything like that or walk into a bank with a suitcase full of $50,000 and say I want to deposit this because They'll say, where the hell did this come from, you know, and do some tracking. Uh, so
1: the idea of money laundering well, is... you should they should just ask you where it came from. And if you don't have a plausible explanation, then they should stop you, basically.
0: Yeah. But the the idea behind money laundering is taking income that's coming from illegal sources and trying to... Make that money not traceable back to those sources, basically. Just
1: make it into usable money, essentially. Yeah. It's a big problem for criminal organizations because they are criminal organizations, so there's always law enforcement after them, and they want to be able to use the money they have, but they don't want to raise suspicions about where uh, about where the money came from and have their whole empire be brought down by the law enforcement so they spend a decent amount of effort into hiding things.
0: Yeah and I mean all income that we have regularly aside from the tipping economy which we won't really get into but your basic income is claimed by a company and claimed by you as Money that's been transferred in a year to the government. And so they have a vague idea of what you can be spending. And so if you're involved in a bunch of illegal activity and coming up with these implausible sums of money, then spending it directly is going to, again,
1: raise a lot of alarms. And if you're doing illegal things, then you don't want to raise alarms. But there are lots of exceptions, and that's where the... That's where money launderers thrive, and that's how they how they launder their money. Yeah, so launder also is like laundry. They're cleaning it, money yeah, laundering.
0: Exactly, that's the, the term, is just take dirty money and make it clean. And
1: the whole little dance there is just a part of a bigger battle between law enforcement and criminal actors, basically.
0: Uh, yeah, so do you want to walk through let's just say one way that it's done like follow a dollar from the drug purchase to the
1: point where it's clean well i feel like we kind of people should understand okay i uh, like though i guess the one of the things is that the because if it's if it's a drug thing which is kind of one of the main legal forces of money it's going to be paid in small amounts by lots of people gets filtered up and up and up until there's just like a whole shit ton of small bills that add up to a lot of money and look real suspicious uh, so that's where you need to launder
0: yeah i I there's a huge red flag in having 10,020s instead of 2,100 bills it just it's impractical and a bank is not going to provide you with that if you want to take your money
1: out yeah also why would you want that
0: yeah i mean other than for hip-hop music videos there's not a lot of <laughs> situations in where that's desirable yeah <laughs> <laughs> and this was or has all been done for generations and so do you want to talk a little bit about the history of it
1: yeah, it's surprisingly pretty recent actually they're in 1991, they made the Proceeds of Crime Act, which was a, a bill passed in Canada. It was guided by the Financial Action Task Force, which was a G7 committee. The FAT? FAT. Is <laughs> <laughs> threw a federation on there or something? Task Force. Financial Action Task Force. Oh, okay. The FATF. Yeah, they had 40 recommendations. The This bill was just meant to fulfill the commitment that Canada made when they signed that. And essentially it just forces businesses and banks to use record-keeping standards that make money laundering easier to detect and more difficult to do um, for people who are trying to do it. And so you had to identify people's source of money... That was essentially the focus and also who your client is. Um, So, yeah, they have to have ID and they have to tell you where where they got all their cash, essentially. But it applies to financial entities, which is basically banks and credit unions and such things. Loan companies, insurance, trust companies, and life insurance companies, brokers and agents. Securities dealers, it's all money stuff basically, accountants, and then real estate brokers, casinos, dealers in precious metals and stones, public notaries, and for some reason they they specify notary corporations of British Columbia, even though it's a federal thing. I don't know what that's about, but they have to also, from this act, uh, report all cross-border money movements. That's kind of the thing you see about... Do you have cash instruments it's, when you cross the border over a certain amount or whatever? You'll see on your little... Customs? Customs. Claim yeah. sheet or whatever, yeah. Yeah, so that act is it did that. It established an agency to monitor and deal with the things. And then in 2001, as a response to 9-11, they included reverse money laundering, essentially. Reverse money laundering being money that will go to fund a criminal organization as opposed to money that's coming from a criminal organization that needs to be cleaned so they can use it it's going to criminal organizations so that was yeah trying to not buy things i suppose from al-qaeda and stuff that's what they were worried about it was also further amended later to include electronic transfers and had more you're supposed to do more paperwork, more risk reports, and it's helps with or they also required more intelligence sharing between other enforcement agencies. And so that's pretty much just what the state of law in money laundering has been in Canada. is from mainly from that nineteen ninety one thing and then with a few amendments later on to include some other yeah. things.
0: And so it's it's protocol amongst Banking institutions and casinos that certain transactions uh they they can either meet the criteria or they can just kind of raise alarms at the clerk's discretion and they can fill out forms and say, "Hey, just so you know x person deposited x number of dollars uh and it seemed a little I
1: don't weird. think it's just at the discretion I think there's
0: no there's 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 numbers that's what I said there's criteria that it meets it, but if it doesn't meet that criteria, they can still do it oh, okay. I believe the number is, is $10,000. If anything over $10,000 in cash deposit, then it's an automatic requirement to to fill out that, that form. For example, the federal agency trying to explain what they do had a thing out there that was uh, like a video about it, but basically they found a whole ring that happened because two people were coming into the same bank institution Two or three times a week with ten thousand plus dollars in cash, and so you know that triggered an investigation, which they then tracked that money for a long time to overseas places and put eight hundred transactions and twelve different actors all together and connected everything, and then were able to persecute them. Cool. That's becoming harder now. I believe it appears to be becoming harder. Just with the online technology and the way we deal with money now, because when you needed to report to a bank, obviously there was a face-to-face interaction with someone who would inherently be skeptical of you. And that's not necessarily the case anymore. Things like cash transfer apps and online banking and using things like uh, proxy servers. So that's just basically hiding your IP address, which is like the identity of the device you're using. Uh, are all possible. And so it makes it harder to track the source of the money in many ways.
1: Yeah, there was uh, some amendments to the Proceeds of Crime Act that were supposed to help with that. But those still can't deal with cash. And cash is still king in all the old activities because it's not traceable. All, yeah, in the end, if you got to get your cash somewhere. Electronic things don't really matter. You gotta physically take your cash to a place and At some point somebody has
0: to recognize it, convert it, and digitize it.
1: Yeah. So that's still a big issue for criminal organizations, and that's mainly what we're gonna be talking about.
0: Yeah, so the estimated figure, I believe this is an American study said worldwide there's about five hundred and twelve somewhere between five hundred and twelve billion and one point two trillion US dollars that is Laundered annually. In the world? In the world. Okay, it seems like how could they possibly know that? I don't, but that's why the variable on that is $700 billion. Yeah. <laughs> but it's just a, kind of a basic realm of a lot of money to, to give us an idea. Um, so I guess the first thing to talk about are the institutions that exist in Canada to try and combat this. So federally, there is FinTrack, the Financial Transactions and Reports Analysis Center of Canada. So if anyone files a suspicious transaction report, any bank or casino or whoever it is, it's going to FinTrack and they're receiving that data and they work on trying to piece those reports together and make something logical out of it. Provincially, things have changed somewhat until 2006. There was an agency that was looking into this spe- specifically the gambling and gaming sector and then it got abolished. There's an integrated gaming unit
1: 2009. The Sorry, government yeah. shut down integrated task force to investigate casinos, essentially.
0: Yeah. Um And so then the RCMP didn't have a dedicated force for that.
1: Uh, no, they had proceeds of crime units, but those were shut down in 2013, all of them. Yeah. So after that, there was essentially no one to enforce money laundering rules.
0: Yeah. And then in 2016, the government created the JIGGIT, J-I-G-G-I-T, which stands for the Joint... Institute on Gambling and Gaming, something
1: or other. It's an illegal game, illegal gaming in, investigation team.
0: Yeah, so they would be the ones who would review it provincially. But notably, there was a gap in that for several years.
1: The reason we know about what's going on or what has been, what the history of the status of money laundering enforcement agencies is, is because. Now, things have gotten out of hand. Uh, There's been reports about huge amounts of money being laundered in BC casinos. And there's been a bunch of stuff going on you may have heard in the news. And so, we're going to talk about that.
0: Yeah, so I guess, essentially, it's been known for a while and there's been investigations going on. But it's been kept from the public until... Very recently, and there was a W five report that was published on February ninth that uh, really started to raise some alarms and was
1: kind of crazy to watch. Well, it was before that there was alarms going off. Like by then, there was already a report given. So, well, I guess we're going to be referencing this this one CTV W five report video that
0: pretty extensively I'll put a link to it on uh, onesubstance.com under the blog for this podcast um, show notes show notes yeah basically but uh if you search up BC money laundering on YouTube it'll be the first hit
1: it's uh I mean I've got I've got a bunch of other information from other sources too but That's kind of the main thing. It's the only place I really found that kind of tried to show the timeline and made it into a thing that made sense. There's so many different little things I saw here and there, and the story is not well told, it seems to me.
0: Yeah, and it it gets really complicated to try and tell this story to a full degree because there are basically businesses made to just hold money or holdings companies there are a bunch of different actors who are acquiring money and trading money in a bunch of different bank accounts and then obviously even more individual transfers of money that are happening on smaller scales and so it's to try and tell the story in its completion requires a huge time investment for a, an observer because it is a complicated process
1: uh, and there's also all sorts of different provincial and federal agencies. There's different casinos. There's different whistleblowers and people in charge of different reports that are being commissioned. And yeah, it's pretty pretty hard to keep track of everything that's going on. Yeah, uh, the gist of it, if I can sum it up very briefly, yeah, that we've talked about how complicated
0: it is uh, is <laughs> Uh, there was an individual who worked in uh, for the BC Lottery Corporation, which is a monopoly who's supposed to be o- who is supposed to be overseeing all of the casinos. BCLC? Seeing... His name was Ross Alderson? Uh, yes. Who was seeing just a bunch of money come in, usually in $20 bills. Uh, there's video evidence of individuals bringing in bags, grocery bags worth of money. Suitcases. Yeah. Uh, just... Copious amounts of money, More Most, than mostly twenties,
1: yeah. mostly in like wrapped in rubber bands, in like bundles of, uh, what do they say? Bundles of $100,000, no, Twenty thousand? bundles of forty thousand, as I think it forty thousand. Sometimes it's crazy. It's like so it was yeah, bringing in like
0: up to three hundred thousand dollars per person. Uh, there was there were some bigger than that, but okay yeah, a large large amounts of money to these casinos, taking it in for chips and going to these um high stakes backroom tables, basically and playing do you remember the name of the game was Backrat. Baccarat, which I have no idea what that is, but it's a game, yeah, it's a Chinese betting game
1: actually, uh there's another really interesting story i have heard about backrat. Where a uh, another high stakes uh player and uh or high stakes gambler and a very famous poker player are involved in a bunch of lawsuits with a bunch of casinos for rigging games, essentially. And
0: Yeah, it's a crazy whirlwind of a story. Right uh um, it doesn't really, doesn't really tie into anything we're doing here though. But yeah, so getting it like walking in with these large sums of money and going in and betting and doing whatever they do and then cashing out, but essentially bringing in this money that they couldn't really source and that the the casinos themselves were not inquiring about. They were essentially employees were told that it's impolite to ask and it's culturally appropriate for. Uh, it was a predominantly Asian population, and it was culturally appropriate for them to have large sums of money.
1: But they, yeah, it was it was part of their culture. They said to deal in cash, and it was rude to ask questions. And so that's what they that's what they told our whistleblower Ross Alderson there. But it sounds like really it's just a a way to turn a blind eye, essentially, and not challenge them. Yeah, keep the keep the money coming in and. Just, yeah, huge amounts of money coming in and they're betting it
0: and then cashing out. But they again, they're coming in with these rolls of twenties and then they're leaving with clean hundred dollar bills that are not can't be sourced to anywhere.
1: Yeah, that was actually some some crazy stories so of there was people coming in with a hundred thousand dollars cash in twenties and walking out with hundreds. And it sounded like they weren't even going in to gamble. It sounded like they were just,
0: just uh, doing that. I believe his phrasing was played little or none at all kind of thing, just hung out in the casino for an hour, Uh, maybe played a little bit, but, you know, weren't risking that money. They were just changing that money for other also money.
1: Yeah. And I think that, well, like, that's the idea of it anyways here is it gets laundered as you say. It's in casino winnings essentially, and that's that. No one can really say anything about it after that. You got it from the casino.
0: Yeah, and, and I mean that is one place where hypothetically you could accrue large sums of money if you get lucky is the idea. Yeah. Um so basically that took place over a number of years before the red flags were raised and yeah, so BCLC is uh technically a provincial corporation. Uh, and the province had disbanded the organizations that were persecuting these people, and so there were there were similar forms, these uh, suspicious behavior forms, being filed. But the lottery, lottery and gambling is overseen by the province, not the federal government, and so they were going, they were being filed to nobody essentially because there wasn't an agency that was reviewing these things
1: the bc gaming policy and enforcement branch reported and filed internally a bunch of suspicious transactions they automatically had to for over ten thousand dollars ten thousand dollar buy-ins in cash and sometimes there was like crazy stuff like four thousand twenties none of that was ever investigated because there was no one really to investigate, and they just filed them and reported them and that was or like reported them filed them, and that's it. they just sat there, so they're still there uh and it's still crazy that you can see,
0: yeah, and so they did some tracking and they they did basically they found one institution it was called Silver, Silver International, yeah, which was. Essentially, what they were doing was taking in money from drug organizations, large sums of money. There was video of a suitcase with something like $1.3 million, I want to say, and $20 bills in it.
1: There's left in the floor. It's crazy.
0: <laughs> Brought in and dropped off one day. And then they were loaning out large, large sums of money to high stakes gamblers who were either gambling it or just laundering it. it. They didn't say a lot about how much of that money was actually being used for gambling versus used as a laundering process.
1: And they talked about loan sharking. I guess that's just giving these people loans. And they said a lot of it was paid back to back to China essentially. So
0: Yeah, so Silver International, it seems like there's a Silver Bank in China with over 400 locations that would then Basically, the debt paid from these people who were taking these loans was paid back to a bank in China. So then the money was, was traceable, basically, and clean money back to a bank in China.
1: So the, the federal police discovered this essentially illegal underground bank, and it was just in a business complex in Richmond. They found there $2 million in 20s. And in the whole string of raids, they found $7 million, They because they went to some other places, I suppose. And they nearly had a press conference about it, but then it got canceled, so the public remained in the dark about it. And But overall, Silver International, that I, I think it was just that one location, I had $220 million go through it in the year before the raid. Yeah. So that's dirty money from drug stuff, essentially coming in, and it's laundered going out, essentially.
0: And so you're looking at seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars ish a day, like significant, significant cash flow coming through this institution. It's crazy that a singular institution is moving that much money,
1: especially Um, such a like it's just a little office in a business complex. It's just a little,
0: yeah, there was the security of that money was insanely low, and you'd just seeing the sheer volumes of it was was shocking, yeah but essentially, yeah, what's coming out of this now is it's been clear that b c has been sort of a hub of of money laundering, and there was a quote from the attorney general. Currently, David Eby about it, whom he was asked, um, you know, is, is BC out of the money laundering then? And he said, well, the casinos are significantly reduced, but that's just one way. And there's potential that this has been happening in a multitude of other
1: areas, namely real estate and a couple other things. So there's supposed to be reports getting back on that later. But, yeah, I want to talk still some more about the other stuff here. Is that they had a a list of the hundred top players in DC casinos and 97 of them were Asian, which is pretty crazy. Mostly they were working in real estate, but also on the list were housewives and students. And it's like, what? That's insane. How, like, was how nobody saying anything about this? Or
0: Yeah. It's, it's, you want to believe in there, that our institutions are being rigorous, but, uh, it seemed just relatively simple that these individuals or this singular organization was was laundering money without much effort or scrutiny or challenge.
1: I guess when, when David Eby found out about this and this was sort of becoming clear it was going to become public, or maybe it already was, they launched an independent review of money laundering in BC NBC casinos, and Peter German was supposed to be the investigator he like wrote books on money laundering and and is known to be somewhat of an expert in the matter and his report which was released just about a year ago march 2018 like in the first thing says for some time that they were the bc casinos were unwittingly laundering money but it like then all the stuff he says, and everything else we hear about it, it sounds like it was not unwitting, like it was deliberate willful willful blindness willful is what ignorance. it was, yeah, willful ignorance, and there's been now some questions about his conflict of interest because he sits on the Richmond Oval board with the guy who, who designed and uh, developed the High limit bedding room, the and the River Rock Casino, which is the main uh, the epicenter, as they say, in the of the, the BC casino money laundering scene. And that guy was not interviewed. His superiors were interviewed, so it's not like he this the Peter German who made the report is just ignoring people, but in the report also he praised the river rock execs for being very helpful in his report and, and other, other whistleblowers are questioning the integrity of the report based on, uh, the way he's talking about the execs there where clearly, you know, they, they were, they messed up. It wasn't.
0: Yeah. I mean, they have some awareness that this was happening, they have to be if they're trying tracking the money that's going those, and if they
1: don't, it's gross negligence. Yeah, or either fully incompetent or like willfully ignorant as, or or just outright uh, bad. They're just <laughs> yeah morally compromised. So yeah, there's been some questions about that now, but he is still the same guy. Peter German is is the one who's supposed to be doing the next report on. The luxury car industry, real estate, and horse racing. Because horse racing, for some reason, is separate from gambling. It's not governed by the BC Lotto Corporation, and it's not under gaming. It's its own thing, for some reason. Somehow got through the, those classifications. But some there's been a, a money laundering tip portal created to assist him to create this report, and apparently there's been close to 200 submissions, and they closed at the end of February, and the report is supposed to be coming out at the end of March. So, we'll see how that goes. There's supposed to be another report coming out. I read, but I don't know what this other report is, but it's supposed to be coming out at the end of March, too, so there's going to be more news coming out about what's going on here. Yeah.
0: My takeaway from the whole thing has been just kind of a disheartening reality that this has been happening and been permitted by government actors of of the previous government, I should say, and has been, yeah, just insanely rampant more than I would have believed until you see the some of the visuals of how much money is coming in and out.
1: It also, pretty damning on the previous government that they claimed in a 2012 report that there was nothing to basically nothing to see here they had a robust anti-money laundering regime and there didn't need to be any more any investigations or help and and then yeah knowing that they shut down basically all the enforcement it seems like Either they just messed up and they thought it was fine, but no, nah, it sounds more like... They knew it was happening and... They are happy to have the... Facilitating it. Yeah, well, happy to have the, the government revenue to... That was, you know, government, government revenue that didn't come in costly taxes. That is an interesting thing also, is that it did... It would would have created some government, government revenue that doesn't come from taxes and so we as british columbians have benefited from what's happened here i mean assuming what what the government does helps you which <laughs> it does but
0: most of it does
1: it's uh it doesn't feel good to like be on the receiving end of, of that kind of uh, money coming in but it probably did help and you can sort of see why a government wouldn't want to push too hard to figure out what was going on to stop those flows of cash from coming in because it's money they can use to help their people without without yeah. charging their people, essentially.
0: You would also assume that there was some uh, duplicity in that, that, that someone in there, in order for them to shut down that commission, you have to think that someone was actually... Profiting directly, and it wasn't just a we're having a better provincial budget because of this.
1: Yeah, uh, I don't see why he'd have to think that.
0: I just feel like the incentive of an increased budget to work with would be an insufficient standard, but that's speculation and not
1: direct knowledge. So it's been estimated that it's over. 1 billion, uh, there, there was one that said 1 billion, another one that said 2 billion. Before that, it said over 1 million, or over 100 million, so it's like, going up, um, we'll see, we'll find, we'll get to know more. But it's been from different reports, like one from an international organization, I, don't, I didn't see what that one was, but it was like, the Attorney General David Eby had been complaining that he is finding out about this stuff by the same way that everyone else is, is through Media releases, and why why isn't the, the government being shared with this information, and so they can combat it and work together? But it's pretty pretty strange, and and it's also interesting that to me that this is such an issue here, and seems to be way more so here than anywhere else, because it seems a bit of a an issue that you wouldn't really you're not really incentivized to put that much effort into combating. So I'm surprised that it's not an issue in other places as much.
0: Yeah. I mean, there is a strong argument for combating it. If globally there's a rigorous anti-money laundering system, then the idea of... Yeah, organized criminal organizations uh, and the profits they would generate, if they are having way more trouble turning that money into mixed like, capital that they can spend, it's a disincentive to do the job they would be doing. But on the other hand, if it's rigorous almost everywhere, then wherever it isn't is just going to see a large influx of money. And so there's a definitely an idea of a race to the bottom. And... It's pretty clear that in some aspects, British Columbia was that bottom for a, a window here.
1: Yeah, it's it's the same sort of tragedy of the commons situation.
0: It's frustrating, too. Uh, I mean, we're seeing the BCLC has essentially failed in its duties, and we've already seen that
1: uh, there's been a bunch of frustrations with... The government's been complicit in, too, by shutting down the enforcement agencies.
0: Yeah, but also then, I mean, it's just, it's another uh, provincial bureaucracy or monopolized industry that is not doing great. Um, You know, there's been a bunch of issues now with the insurance company. What is it? ICBC. ICBC and... DCLC, and it just, it raises a lot of questions. Everyone's about, always got issues with the fairies. Yeah, these government organizations and how they're being run and how rigorously they're being scrutinized. Um, and it's, yeah, it's it's a little bit disheartening as a, as a taxpayer in the province because you would expect that there's a higher standard in these uh, public organizations. The and government monopolies. It's, it's just not clear that there is right now. Larry Campbell
1: who is a senator representing BC and also is the former mayor of Vancouver sits on the board of the group that owns the River Rock Casino and nobody seemed to notice this for quite a while but now they have and yeah there's a lot of a lot of questions being raised about the conflict of interest there and the And the Senate Ethics Committee is going to look into senators sitting on corporate boards. Obviously, this is, like, he's supposed to be, as a senator, representing the people. But also, as a member of the board there, he's supposed to be representing Casino. So,
0: yeah, that's pretty crazy. I mean, that, to me, seems like a pretty apparent thing that you would have to... Not be an active member of government and also board of on the board of companies.
1: Yeah, there's uh, no one from Senate has been allowed to comment on that specifically, but there have been some people saying that it's good that for people to sit on boards of other uh, companies and stuff because it gives them a different perspective and experience. And I don't know. I don't. I don't think I agree with that. Eh, but it's it's uh, something that i guess they're going to look into it's been reported that he has collected more than 800,000 in cash compensation and 2.1 million worth of shares as board director so
0: yeah $3 a $3 million in bit... payments would be enough to make you think twice about raising challenges towards this
1: and company like, in a, on a government perspective, totally. And where his loyalties lie, where he's getting 150000 a year and it's a Senate job. And I don't know how long he's been doing this, but he's got $3 million there. So it wasn't that long ago that he was the mayor. So I would assume it's more than 150000 between the
0: shares. And Yeah. But I mean, the shares can be sold, so it's as good as money.
1: Yeah, so that's another kind of icky thing that's going on. It's possible he could be kicked out of Senate, but that doesn't happen very often. So that'll be interesting to follow going forward also. Another thing is that there's been calls for a full-scale public inquiry into money laundering in VC. The government is being criticized for not doing this, and I I don't know if they've come out and said... I don't think they have exactly come out and said, but doing so would shut down any prosecutions that they had. So that means that anyone... They couldn't basically take anyone to jail because they... Would have to make everything public, and it would stop all of their things they could be using in their prosecutions, which also is something we want. So there's a a conflict there, um, yeah, because you kind of want to see people be. Held accountable. Yeah, held accountable for, for this sort of stuff.
0: As of now, and correct me if I'm wrong on this, but my impression was that there have been no convictions in regarding this money laundering.
1: Yeah, so there was a case that was... I'm not sure if it went to trial or if it was just about to, but against it was against the two owners of the Silver International branch in Richmond that we talked a whole bunch about. And... That had to be put on hold because prosecutors accidentally disclosed information that could identify an informant. So basically, someone helped them out and they accidentally had too much or had information that could identify that person. They could be harmed. So they had to shut the whole thing down, which super unsatisfying because now... Those people walk free just because of a this like essentially a clerical error by the prosecutors. I don't think there's anything else in at trial right now or any names that have been named essentially that are going through the process, but I think there's a lot of a lot of prosecutions going on in secret.
0: Yeah. But it also seems like there's the Risks of having done this in terms of punishments being dealt out are pretty low.
1: Seems pretty insane for the amount of money they're dealing with.
0: That's pretty obviously drug money. So the legal stuff is a long process, but it has, they have been aware of it for quite some time now. And the well, fact that there's been no, like zero convictions to this point is definitely. I would say surprising, disappointing, Yeah. some combination of the two.
1: Well, the the provincial government hasn't, or the provincial, yeah. I mean, I guess maybe RCMPF a little bit, but not as much. It's been, the federal government has been investigating kind of on their own for a while. And, or federal police, I suppose, and... I mean, they had they had this one, but it didn't work out, and yeah.
0: Yeah, so I guess that's kind of the state of affairs. Is there anything else you wanted to hit on here before we wrap this thing up? 2014,
1: 2015, more than $1 billion in gambling revenue to the government. It's uh, funded healthcare, education, and community programs across BC, so that's kind of the reason What they
0: percentage couldn't... of that was laundered is hard to say, but when you've got people walking in with hundreds of thousands of dollars, you have to assume that it's a non-negligible amount.
1: Yeah. When things are at their worst, they were saying that uh, there was more than $20 million in cash buy-ins, I think, just at the River Rock, and more than $15 million of that was in 20s.
0: In a single month.
1: In a single month. Yeah. So,
0: so, I mean... You start extrapolating that and that's serious money and if it was over multiple years. But that
1: was that was at its worst, but still, yeah. Yeah. And Well also you could just look at like what Silver International was doing is okay, that's
0: okay. That's kind of in line with that two hundred and twenty million dollar figure because twenty million a year is two hundred and forty million, so um
1: Yeah, twenty million a month. Or twenty million a month, yeah.
0: So yeah, a lot. Just a lot.
1: Well they were estimating at yeah, between one and one and two billion, so Yeah,
0: and yeah, I came into this thinking money laundering was more difficult and would be more robust in terms of how they were doing it. And then watched this report, and there's just video surveillance of drug dealers bringing in suitcases of money, and then.
1: Well, not necessarily drug dealers, but.
0: People with previous drug convictions bringing in. No,
1: no, I don't think so.
0: The one individual, was it, they said
1: something about him. I that remember. was into Silver International, and that was through...
0: Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Bringing it into a financial institution, leaving it there, and then having them lend it to somebody. And
1: Right, but that surveillance was... They only got that by the raid. It was Silver International's surveillance. It wasn't... Uh...
0: That is public video now. Yeah. So, it's just... Obviously, we don't have the checks in place when it can be done in such a simple way.
1: Yeah, but you can see how it happens through the incentives that are that exist out there. But it's still pretty, pretty icky that it's happening, and yeah, you know, that people are looking the other way. And
0: and I wouldn't be surprised if there was a lot more reports on this in other sectors. I mean, I think it would be relatively easy uh, in real estate.
1: A lot of this money is going to be connected to to fentanyl that's coming from yeah. Asia over into Vancouver. So it bleeds into the opioid crisis a bit too, and then if it's going to real estate, it's it's affecting the housing market and uh Those are pretty much the two biggest things going on in in b c and uh, you can see that how this could affect it,
0: yeah, which is crazy that it would it would you know tie into both of those in such an adverse way. it's like makes this a very interesting point of contention and uh, a story worth paying attention to,
1: yeah, the only other thing that i I've sort of thought about this was throughout the whole thing is that i'm not sure this is actually possible to stop could definitely do better here and obviously what's been done has been inadequate but it seems that the outcome is pretty much inevitable that criminal organizations are going to find a way to use their money
0: yeah the one argument i've seen is that if as a country you're very good at it there's an added step then in them trying to get mules to move this money physically out of your country
1: yeah and then exchange it i guess and that would be even harder so
0: you know drugs in canada are bought in canadian dollars and so and physically exist in canada and so there is an argument that having the step of it not being super feasible within your country does add a layer, an expense, a burden, and a risk to the, whoever's getting this money.
1: We're saying this could all be stopped by legalizing everything.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, if there's that much drug money circulating in the hands of organized crime, then it definitely is an argument towards, in combination with, what we're seeing happening with fentanyl and death rates and ideas of controlling the substance, controlling the flow of money.
1: Seemed unthinkable years, like maybe 10 or 20 years ago, that cannabis could be fully legalized, and, but it can solve some issues and maybe uh, something you could see down the line.
0: There's certainly a more compelling argument for it now uh than there has been i guess previously just because in light possible. of what's going on uh both with the dangers of drugs and the amount of uh money that's clearly being made off of
1: this and that is possible because cannabis has gone through it
0: yeah and the political feasibility of it so i think that's gonna wrap things up for us on uh a really loaded topic. Like I said, uh, the link to that video uh, will be on onesubstance.com. That's in, one. In the show notes. One, the number, substance.com. And then,
1: yeah. It should just be in the show notes in your podcast app.
0: Yes. I can do that, I'm sure. All right. Thanks
1: for hanging out with us,
0: and we'll uh talk to you again next week.
1: What are we doing next week? Uh, Softwood lumber? Opioid crisis. Let's
0: do softwood lumber.
1: Okay. Softwood lumber it is.